So I, I've shared with you before that I have the privilege of being one of four boys. So often people say, oh, your poor mother, when I say that. But uh, I have some really adventurous brothers. In fact, one of them, he has done just about everything. He's hang, glide, he's hung glide, hang glided in California. Um, he not only skydived, I've shared with you that I've skydived a couple of times, landed on the X both times like I was supposed to. Uh, but my one brother who had motorcycled in the Alps and done all kinds of you know, bungee jumping, he had one experience in particular that stood out to him. He was training so that he could skydive without having somebody strapped to his back, without a static line. And he was almost on that number of jumps. He'd done it many times, successful jumps. And on one of the times, one of his last times that he had jumped out of a perfectly good plane at 35,000 feet, he, with a man strapped to his back on a tandem jump, had the painful experience of finding out that the original chute did not open appropriately. So they say that you get to a speed of about 150 miles per hour, and he could hear the man behind him saying, I am going to have to cut. Now, later, we would do some research and find out that that process, usually it involves unclipping the first parachute so your backup chute is opened, happens about one in every thousand jumps, which is, sounds like a pretty high number to me. But um, this man could not unclip, and so he proceeded to get out a knife to cut off the original chute. And thankfully, the original chute did open at that point. And my brother was supposed to land on the X, you remember? Uh, he landed a couple miles away in a tree, uh, but thankfully, safely. Uh, I'm not sure if he's gone skydiving after that or not, to, to be honest with you. But, but there's this moment, and I want us to capture it this morning. In that experience, there was this moment where he had to decide, that man had to decide if what was there could be removed. It had to be removed in order for him to experience life in that context. And today what we're going to see in God's word is we're going to see a group of people who have to do surgery in their life. They have to cut away something that's valuable to them in order to experience the blessing of God. And I want to encourage you this morning as we study God's word together, we're going to see an example from the life of the apostle Paul. That we're going to see that he was a man who was willing to set aside his ease. He was willing to set aside what was comfortable, his choices, his preferences for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to see a group of people that recognize that there are things, even things that you and I come in contact with every day of our life that can prove to be empty counterfeits that attempt to hold the power of God in our life or the place of God in our life, but that often are just echoes of what God really wants to do in and through us. And what we're going to see is at the expense of billions of dollars, individuals who obeyed the truth of the gospel were willing to let those things be burned. They're willing to be done with them. They're willing to unshackle them as a part of their life. And, and what we understand about the truth of the gospel, Pastor Jim mentioned it, for those whom the Lord has set free, they are free indeed. The promise in scripture is that we are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness for his name's sake. And this morning, as we study God's word in an incredible passage of scripture, we're going to look at what it means for us to let go of some of those things that might be holding us back, might be hindering us from what God wants to do in our lives. And, and in that process, what we're going to be doing, encouraging you to do, is to trade what is temporary for what is eternal. 
We're surrounded by so many things that are temporary. We're surrounded by so many things that are full of empty promises to us in our lives, empty solutions for the deepest challenges of our life. And what we're going to see in the text today is the Apostle Paul modeled for us what it meant to depend on the Lord, even sacrificially, in a context that would have been very challenging to do so. This is the third missionary journey that the Apostle Paul participated in. And he left from Antioch again, and he went to an ancient city by the name of Ephesus. I had the privilege of visiting Ephesus in modern-day Turkey uh, several years ago, and Ephesus was an incredible city. They, they say it was kind of like a hybrid between modern Silicon Valley with all its advances and progress. They, they even had running water. They had public restrooms. They, in, the, in the city, in the center of the city, they had this, uh, they called it an eternal flame, which I guess it's not an eternal flame because it's not burning anymore. But uh, there was an incredible amount of wealth represented in the city. And, and the Apostle Paul, on his third missionary journey, is going to spend years there in the context where the people that he's ministering to were, were experiencing great wealth for that time period. But they were also, it's been called a modern day Disneyland. When we visited the um, museums there. They had all these trinkets. And, and I looked at them at the beginning. I thought that looks like, like a souvenir that you'd get at like Disneyland. Well, that's exactly what they said that they were. They were trinkets that people would travel from all around the ancient world to come to this, what was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was described by individuals as being a place that was full of commerce and wealth I love the way Strabo, who um, called this Ephesus the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. In other words, it was a business center. This, this quote from Antipater is interesting. You can see, he says, I've experienced all these other things, but the last sentence is, is interesting to me, where he says, he says, those other marvels lost their brilliancy when I saw the house of Artemis that that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels just lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked so bright. This, this site of the temple of Artemis or Diana was one with, of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 marbled pillars. They rose 60 feet to support a gorgeous ceiling, ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems. The temple's huge canopy covered 425 feet in length and this, this altar to this pagan goddess of fertility was one that had all kinds of religious practices that involved wealth and giving over sacrificially to this goddess for fertility. And, and it led to this, this place being a place that was full of abundance. But uh, I tease that it was like an ancient Disneyland. This was a different kind of magic that was there. We say it's the magic kingdom. Well, they were filled at that time with with practices of dark magic, sorcerers, conjurers, fortune tellers, demon worshipers. There was a great evil that distracted that community. And it, it's, it was one that, that was everywhere that you looked around, that this, this darkness around them, it had permeated the Jewish synagogue. It was something that was palpable there in this community. And it, and it brings us to this first point this morning. And that is as the apostle Paul comes into this really difficult place for ministry. One of the things that he modeled for us is that he was a man who was willing to abandon his ease. 
He was willing to abandon what was comfortable for him. We're told in the scripture, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 19, beginning in verse 8, that, that he continued on in his practice as was normal in other cities, that he entered into the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But we, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. It's kind of funny. One of my old seminary profs said this was um, somewhat of a record for the Apostle Paul, that he made it in the synagogue for three months. He, he, he would get kicked out earlier in other places. But here he was able to have um, a place where he represented the truth of the gospel to this group of people faithfully, for three months. But then afterwards, he did not just give up, right? He didn't just move on to what was comfortable. He didn't choose to complain about the fact that he'd experienced opposition. He didn't allow himself to be discouraged. These are all things that we see happen around us all the time, right? A little bit of opposition and a person chooses to surrender, to give up. But what the Apostle Paul did, they, they believed that he and the disciples rented a building that was connected with a philosopher in the region. And it says in verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way or the, the Christians that were following the gospel before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This this was incredible. This happened in a time period in the day that's fascinating to me. So in Ephesus, the way their, their normal days were built around getting up very early and staying up very late and having this five-hour siesta in the middle of the day. Some of you are like, that sounds great. Uh, they didn't commit it to watching football, but what they did was they were committed to having a time period in the mornings where they worked hard physically. That, when it says from the fifth hour to the tenth, that's from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That was a time period that the Apostle Paul reasoned in this place. It says literally in the text again that he reasoned daily with them. In other words, he dialogued with them, shared the truth of the gospel, that Christ died on the cross for their sins, that the way of hope was through the work of the gospel and the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. But what's fascinating to me is when you combine this with what is said in Acts chapter 20, verse 34, that the Apostle Paul said that you know that it was with these hands that I ministered to my necessities that the Apostle Paul would get up early like the rest of the city at 7 a.m. and work with his own hands from 7 to 11. And then after he would spend these hours teaching and dialoguing in the synagogue, and then he'd go back, or not in the synagogue, but in this place of Tyrannus, the philosopher, and then he'd go back and work with his hands. And, and, and you look at this and you just realize that the Apostle Paul was a person who was so committed to the message that his own comfort was pushed to the wayside. His own preferences, perhaps, his own ease was pushed to the wayside. And instead, what he chose to do was to embrace the truth that the gospel is more important than anything else. We also see here that the gospel requires hearing. The gospel requires understanding and the gospel requires believing. Hearing, we, we recognize in scripture that God's word says to us this powerful truth that, that salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That message was the message the apostle Paul was teaching. 
But individuals in that time period wrestled with it. They, they worked through a dialogue that led them to understanding. And this last part kind of scares me a little bit in the church these days. And that is, is that there's, it, they, they didn't just hear the message. They didn't just understand it. But they went through the process of believing it. And, and I believe that there's some of us that are surrounded by the church, the, the practices and routines of church day in and day out, but, but perhaps that last step is the thing that we're missing in our lives. In this case, the Apostle Paul argued faithfully for years, helping other individuals to understand the truth of the gospel in a personal and powerful way. His comfort did not define his mission. And I want to challenge you in that area. It's, it's difficult in our culture today to represent the gospel well. It comes with some implied risks. It, it comes with a sense of the fact that we're going to put ourselves out there and maybe put at risk our relationships, our, our positions of authority, some of those things that, that are challenging for us. I love the story that Soren Kierkegaard wrote about a duck flying northward across Europe with his fellow migrating ducks one spring. He said, a certain duck landed in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks enjoying some of their corn. Then he stayed for an hour and then a day and then a week and then a month. Finally, relishing the good fare and the safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer long. One autumn day when his wild duck friends were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard. And the duck heard their cries. He felt the thrill of joy and delight. And with a great flapping of wings, he rose to the air to join his old comrades in their flight. But he found that his good fare had made him soft and heavy. He could raise no higher than the eaves of the barn. So he dropped back again to the barnyard and he said to himself, oh, well, my life is safe here and the food is good. So every spring and autumn, when he heard the wild ducks honking, coming and going, his eyes would gleam for a moment and he would begin to flap his wings. But finally, the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry, but he paid not the slightest attention to them. I, I, I love this story because I, I believe it portrays a temptation for each one of us. That that when it comes to originally understanding our first love of the gospel, that for many of us, there's a sense of excitement about pursuing and sharing with others the, the willingness to sacrifice greatly for the sake of the gospel. And then over time, it can become something that is mundane for us, that we are not willing to pay the price of obedience to the Lord. And what it can do is lead us to be people who are lazy the Lord Jesus was very comfortable with pushing us out of our comfort zone. Think of the disciples. That, that for the disciples that he pulled many of them away from their careers, from their homes. He told them they weren't allowed to bring an extra wallet for the journey. That he was comfortable with them not taking an extra cloak along with them. He, he was fine with pushing them out of their comfort zones because of the fact that he wants us to be people who depends upon him in that process. The Apostle Paul modeled this beautifully in the text. I think he, he's an example to us of steadfast obedience. And the person who does this, leading to the second point this morning, is a person who understands that a requirement for obedience to the Lord is often abandoning ourselves. What I mean by that, the Lord Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 16. He says, if a person would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Love this, this picture 
of Narcissus who is gazing at his own face, that he's stuck being aware of his own wants and his needs and his desires, his full awareness of self is really one of the most damaging things that we can experience in the Christian life, that, that we can find ourselves thinking too highly of ourselves or in many cases thinking too lowly of ourselves. And in that reality, we find ourselves consumed with thinking of ourselves, right? And in this process, what we see is that the Apostle Paul is going to be a man who chooses to set aside his comforts, his control, his preferences in order to be a man who is obedient to God's mission in his life. I had a woman one time in our church in California who came up to me and had a piece of paper that listed out how many hours she had invested in serving at the church. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know what to do with that. Because I realized like she, she had tallied this up. She was sensitive to this because she, for some reason, wanted to get credit for it or something like that. And, and here, the example of the Apostle Paul was one where literally it's day and night. He's, he's all in. Lord, what do you have for me today? I'm going to do it. I'm in. I'm willing to set aside my preferences for your glory. Are you willing to say that in your life? Are you willing to look at your own life and to say, Perhaps it's time for me to set aside what's comfortable for me. And, and there are always going to be people who look at the church and say, I want to pick and choose what I want out of it. And in fact, we see this in the text. In verse 11 of chap- chapter 19, it says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Let me pause there for a second. Miracles are things that could only happen if God did them. That God in his infinite mighty strength and power chooses to put a pause on some of the rules of creation that he himself put in place and allows himself to show himself glory and honored through his work. I like this definition of miracle. A miracle is something that's a special event that displays God's unique power and authority. So when I say it's a miracle that I found the parking spot that I want or my football team won the game, probably not that accurate, right? But when we see God's manifest hand at work and we can only stand back and say, without God, without God's mighty work, it couldn't have happened. That's, that's what a miracle is. And here, what we see is that God was working a miracle at the hands of the Apostle Paul. But what's great is a few verses later, it's just that, that Paul wasn't being lifted up. This wasn't about Paul or his glory. They all realized that this was God at work through this conduit of grace, right? So, so there's mighty works that are happening. Do you remember that this, this is what happened when Jesus walked through a city and a woman reaches over and touches the corner of his cloak and she's healed miraculously? Let's, let's be honest, it has nothing to do with the cloak. It, it has everything to do with the God of the cloak, right? It has everything to do with his power. You can go online right now, you can probably Google it and see if someone will sell you a cloth that's been dipped in the Jordan River that will heal you. It's gross, to be honest, it's super sad to read those things because they're misunderstanding something. It's interesting in the text here that this description of these items that were a part of Apostle, the Apostle Paul's life, this, this handkerchief or this, this tissue, like the, the, the text has this undertone of his sweat is involved in it. And I want you to catch this. Like his, his sweat was not because of the fact that he was trying to bring glory to himself. He wasn't selling anybody on anything but instead, what he was choosing to do was lifting up, lift up the name of Christ. But there were others that were around him that chose to try to bottle this up for their own advancement. It says this in verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons 
that it touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, individuals who took it upon themselves to, as a career attempt to cast out demons, that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, what's happening here? They'd seen the mighty hand of God at work. They didn't know that God, but they thought, well, I know his name. I, I know his name, but do you remember what we said earlier? They're not believing in that God. They're believing in his power, but they haven't entered into a personal relationship with him. And ironically, even the demons are aware of the fact that they're getting this, this wrong. It says in verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. They're, they're attempting to manipulate God's authority and his strength and his power for their own, their own advancement. They're not denying themselves. You know, when it comes to the gospel... And when it comes to the church, there's always people that like to be in the proximity of it because of the fact that they have in their own mind their own selfish gain. Uh, it's interesting, this, this image of a shark, you've seen this before in your life, that there are people who are hangers-on, like the remora, that hangs on to the shark if you look closely, and it's there to, to glean and to gather off of what, what the other one is doing, what he's, he's experiencing. And here, that's exactly what these individuals were doing. They, they were people who wanted to hang on and to take for themselves the glory of the Lord. Verse 15 goes on to say, but the evil spirit, this is the spirit that they're trying to cast out by using the name of Jesus without knowing the God of the universe. It says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I've heard of him, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them. He mastered all of them. He overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This would have been incredibly embarrassing that they were there to exercise this demon, to cast out this demon from this man. And this demon actually casts them out. Verse 17. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Everybody heard about this. But this is what's so powerful it says, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That was Paul's mission all along. It wasn't that people remembered his name. It wasn't that people remembered the names of the disciples. It was that the gospel was lifted up, that God's name was lifted high, that God was glorified in this process. And even though these Jewish leaders claimed to know the secret name of God, what God was going to do was to humble them and to remind them of something that's so important and that is just knowing his name isn't sufficient. I, I, I hate this verse, but it, it's so meaningful and it's such an important one. In the book of Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 33, I want to read this to you because it's so important that there are going to be people who surround the church that understand that there's power in it, understand that God's on the move, but there's going to be some people, even like Judas, that even experience the miracles of God at their hands, but yet have chosen to not know the God of those miracles. It says this in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons 
in your name and do many mighty works in your name. In verse 23, it's so powerful. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. This message is so important to understand that he's saying it is essential not only that we know the name of Christ, but that we believe in the work of Christ on a personal level, that we've accepted this truth for ourselves. And, and there were those that, that wanted to manipulate and get the benefits of it and experience the power behind it without experiencing the God of that message. But here, what we see is the Apostle Paul understood this in such a mighty way that still God's name was lifted high. I don't know what, what it is in your own life, but I'm guessing for those of us in the room that are believers, that there's still some things that are counterfeits in our life that we've tolerated, that we've allowed to creep into our lives that have a potential of hindering our ability to advance in our understanding and knowledge and obedience to the work of God. For some who are not believers, it's possible for them to be people who never understood what it means to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know which category you're in, but, but I want to challenge you. That, that image of the shark reminded me of something when I saw it, that, that we were in Hawaii on vacation, and um, there was a, an ambulance that we were actually at a hotel that had a beach nearby, and we were swimming in the water. It was a great experience. And then we went to lunch, and as we were going to lunch, an ambulance, multiple ambulances and police vehicles went flying down the road uh, back to where we were at. And uh, we ended up flying home the next day. And when I got back to the church that I was serving at, one of the pastors said, hey, did you hear about the shark attack that had happened? And he just said where the beach was. It was where we were at. It was just minutes after we were there. And he said that there was a man that was there that was surfing. He was attacked by a shark. And he, sorry, this is gross. He ripped the eye out of the shark. Like, that's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, pretty crazy, isn't it? Like you, you think about this, this reality. The Lord Jesus said to us, I want you to catch this. He said to us, if our eye causes us to sin, I think he was, he was explaining to us how important it is for us to take, take sin in our life. If your eye causes you to sin, then, then pluck it out, was his statement. And, and I, don't, I don't know for, for you what is the thing that you've allowed to be comfortable in a part of your life that might be hindering your ability to obey the Lord, those empty counterfeits, those appetites that don't go away because they're fed. But what I understand is that there's a, a movement that we can do in our lives in obedience to the Lord that can allow us to do surgery on those areas of our life. Acts chapter 19, verse 18 says this. Also, many of those who were now believers came. They confessed. They divulged their practices. So, so these are individuals who now had, had been stuck in this darkness, the, the conforming to the pattern of Ephesus of that time. They were into all of those things that other people were into, and they just decided, I'm done with it. It's, it's no longer a part of my life. It's not a part of what I... So they confessed it. They they, now, remember what confession is, that confession is telling God what he already knows, right? It's not that God didn't know that they struggled with this, but they're going public with this conviction. Lord, we're done with this. They divulged their practices. In other words, they made it public. And then it says in verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts 
They brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Later historians would approximate that to be about a value of about $6 million. So here Luke describes in the book of Acts this, this number. And I think he does this because he wants us to go, wow, they, they were willing to let go of something that they could have sold to other people. They could have done some things with this that would have been things that would, no, what they decided was it's time for this to do, no longer be in this world anymore. They burned the ships, right? They, they, they allowed retreat to no longer be an option. They plucked it out. They decided that this was time for this to no longer be be a part of their lives. I think that it's important for us to remember that the cost of obedience is always real. That there's never a time in scripture where the promise was obey me and it will be cheap or easy. The cost of obedience to the Lord is real, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God's not at work. In fact, it's, it's powerful to understand that in this sacrifice, what we see at the end of verse 20 is that it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. That, that the gospel spread through this, this sacrifice and this conviction and this obedience. And, and I love, I just keep pointing this out, but I just love that this wasn't people standing back and going, wow, Paul, he's such a great speaker. Wow, wow Paul, he, he needs to be lifted high. Actually, what it was was that God's name was lifted high because the apostle Paul chose to set aside self. He chose to set aside his comforts. He chose to be a man of obedience and self-sacrifice. And God was lifted high in that process. I, I, I love this haunting quote by William Barclay. He says this. He says, It is all too true that too many of us hate our sins but cannot leave them. Even when we do seek to leave them, there is a, the lingering and the backward look. There are times in life when treatment when the treatment must be surgical, when only the clean and final break will suffice. I love this image of an anchor with the, with the chain being broken. Like that, that's, that's what we have to do. We have to, to be willing to say that we're going to let this thing no longer be a part of our lives. This, this pattern, this consistent returning to those things that draw us away from the Lord, a clean Break. In fact, this public declaration of their weakness was not a sign of weakness. It was actually a sign of strength. That same brother who jumped out of the perfectly good plane and landed in the tree, he gave me a precious birthday gift. And it was a Leatherman tool that had my name written on, engraved on the side. It was really a valuable thing to me. And I was um, flying, and this was right after September 11th, and I had forgotten that I had that tool in my carry-on bag. And so uh, I had already had one leg, they missed it in the second leg. So I'm, I'm in another state and they find this thing. Well, I thought they were gonna arrest me. I'm glad they didn't, but they gave me really two choices. It was either you don't fly um, or you throw this in this bucket that's over here. So I had to take this, this thing that was valuable to me and I just had to discard it because where I was going to was too important. And I, I suppose that's the question for us today. That that there's, there's this cost of admission that, that some of us have to accept that we may not have up until this point been willing to pay, but, but that, that willingness to do that puts us in the context of being able to experience firsthand 
the mighty handiwork of God. I love that part of this message that the Apostle Paul got to literally see God at work in such a mighty way that, that God was working through these, these rags, right? These, these things that were surrounding. He just got to experience it firsthand. And I think the reason why he did, and I think the reason why we ought to follow his example is because he understood that it was about the Lord, right? He understood it wasn't about himself. It wasn't about his comfort. It wasn't about his, his weakness, it was about God's strength and his mighty hand that was at work in his life. So I want to ask you three questions by way of application this morning. Uh, the first question is, what makes leaving some sins so difficult for us, even when we know that they're destructive in our lives? What makes that so hard? In Proverbs, it says, like the dog returns to its vomit, so a man returns to its folly. That's pretty gross, isn't it? Uh, but, but the description is just saying, like, we, we return back to these things. It's, it's time for us to allow those things through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in our life, through God's victory over sin in our lives, that we no longer have to be a slave to sin. But God's Word tells us we are slave to righteousness for His name's sake. The second question for you is, what might the long-term consequences be in your life if you continue to tolerate Satan's empty, empty imitations in your life? I use the word counterfeit, right? Nobody wants a counterfeit bill. Nobody wants something that's fake, that over-promises and under-delivers. But Ephesians 4.27 talks about this in our lives. It says that we ought to be people who make no space for the devil in our lives, that the word there is, is one that's topography. It's, it's no geography. We should be people who give him no, no place in our lives. And so here, this opportunity or space for him to be there is one that, you remember what happened to those men who were, were allowing themselves to, to be surrounded by these evil things that had actually won in their lives. It destroyed them. It embarrassed them. It, it, just, it was a source of great pain for them. And for you and I, I think that it's important for us to understand that it's essential that we make no space for the evil one in our lives. Finally, the third question is, what empty counterfeit is the Lord asking you to make a clean and final break from in your life? Those words from William Barclay, they, I love that word, that it's time for us to be people who do surgery. It's time for us to be people to willingly say, I'm going to cut this out of my life because it has no place in my life. For you, if you're an, a person who's surrounded by the gospel, but you find yourself put, perhaps being someone who has heard the name of Christ, but that has never taken that step, I want to encourage you this morning to take this very seriously, that this is a great day for you to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you like me that have had the privilege of knowing the Lord and his grace for a long, long time in our lives, I'm going to ask you to join. We're going to bow our heads together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to actually open up the stairs. Kind of cool. We had folks come up and pray after the first service. I'm going to do that right now. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song that for some of you may be familiar. It was played often in the old Billy Graham crusades that has the lyrics, I surrender all. And I want to ask you to join me in asking that the Lord searches your heart and to reveal anything that's in our lives that is, is proving to be a hindrance in our obedience to the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to join me. Um, if you want, you can pray where you're at. You can sing where you're at, or you can come up to the stairs, and we'll just use them as a, like, kind of an altar to just say, Lord, I surrender all to you, all, everything 
There's nothing that I hold back because of your glory. And we pray this, Lord, asking that you would continue to do a mighty work in and through our lives, even as we declare these words together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.